Hello and welcome to another episode of Refuse Resist Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jacobs. Refuse Resist is a podcast about all things on the left and more. Here we discuss people's personal stories about their discovery of leftist politics, activism, theory, philosophy, art, humor, spirituality, and wellness. I interview organizers, activists, and thinkers who are fighting for a better world. On this episode, I'm excited to be speaking with Ethan Whitman. Ethan is a socialist organizer and artist based in Central Florida. He spends most of his time organizing mutual aid in his community and on his TikTok account. Ethan is dedicated to spreading information and having conversations about mutual aid and socialism. I've asked Ethan to join me because he has one of the best perspectives on the importance of not just theory, but praxis. And I would love to hear more of what he has to say. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. All right, Ethan, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Uh, I found you through TikTok. Um, I follow a lot of leftist creators on TikTok, but your message was a little bit different. Um, I'm someone that has always um, felt that being of service is uh, foundational to any movement. And mm-hmm. you talk a lot about praxis. You talk a lot about mutual aid and the importance of that um, within so- the socialist community, which I think a lot of socialists and trots and Marxist Leninists and, and all those tendencies kind of um, kind of forget that. Um, I, uh, I was speaking with a uh, comrade and friend recently, and he told me straight up that uh, mutual aid is anarchist bullshit. And I was just like really horrified by that. Um, so we're going to go into all that. Um, the Mutual Aid book by Dean Spade. I have it. Uh, you use it as a reference. I want to talk about that as well. But first, I want to talk about your life and what brought you to the left. Yeah. Um, I'd say what brought me to the left was m- my friends, really. I I had always grown up in this kind of liberal space. Uh, my mom's side of the family is very very girl boss, very liberal, uh, oriented. And I had always been involved in politics, both online and offline, uh, through both my mother and because I was an unpopular kid growing up. Uh, I, I joined the internet kind of early on in leftist internet history, kind of around the Gamergate era and, and watched that unfold. Um, and I think the thing that really set off my journey into leftism was uh, reacting to Gamergate and 
I was in high school one day and, you know, big liberal type. And Can my you friend, remind us about Gamergate? Oh, Gamergate was this large kind of prefiguration uh, attempt to form the base of the alt-right online. And it was centered around a bunch of primarily white men on uh, internet forums like 4chan and other websites like Reddit uh, being very mad that women were in the video game industry and kind of using that as an excuse to harass people. Um, and it happened before 2016, so no one in my generation knows about it, but it is one of the most mm. influential things that you know kind of brought us Donald Trump and, and the, the era that we're currently living in. Um, and I was around to see that, which is one of the reasons that I think I have a different perspective from any, anyone else uh, in you know my age group. Uh, but also, I was in high school, uh, very big into politics, and my friend approaches me, uh, kind of an anarchisty type person, and says, "Hey, I, I know you like politics. I know you like uh, you know helping people. Why don't you come?" with me, we're going to do some, some, I, I didn't even know what it was. It was called mutual aid. Uh, and we're just going to do it. It was like a Wednesday. And so I, I go, I go with her and we go to this public park and set out in this public park on like benches is just a whole lot of food and a bunch of people just kind of crowding around, taking what they need. Uh, there was a few clothes, like I think one or two books, but I really got to to be exposed to the left through uh, a different angle than everyone else. I got there through praxis rather than through the internet or through books. I, I was engaged in the left immediately offline on the ground. And ever since then, I, I learned two things. Number one was that my struggles working a job at that time, my struggles uh, not being, you know, wealthy uh, were not, not, I was not alone in that. I got to talk to people who uh, were, who had similar experiences to me. I got to talk about what it was like, how I felt about it and how they felt and how it affected them. Um, and number two was that the systems that made that happen, uh, the, the capitalist, you know, state bureaucracy that we are subject to at every waking moment of our lives were so weak and fragile that a bunch of 14-year-olds on a Wednesday were able to disrupt them and create something new, even for two hours in a public park. But that's, it, it was basically a, I'm never going back kind of moment. Mm, that's really cool. It reminds me of like Food Not Bombs or, or one of these organizations. Was it related to anything like that? It actually wasn't. It was just a bunch of people uh, trying to start a mutual aid collective. Uh, mm -hmm just a random one in my local town, which actually I'm still a part of to this day. Okay. So how did you actually make the connection between like, all right, we're serving the community. We're creating mutual way, mutual aid. We're working outside of the capitalist system. But then how did 
that transition into being like my intention is not just to serve the community outside of the capitalist system, but like we want to create a better society for all. And we want to transition to a different mode of production. I think the thing that really solidified that was talking to other people, um, talking to more experienced people than I was. Uh, I was this, you know, rowdy 14 year old who didn't really know what a community was and talking to people who had experience in organizing community had experience. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a white person, so uh, it had experience being the direct target of violence from the state. Uh, all of these different things, all of these different lived experiences in the community that I got to talk to kind of always pointed back to the same place. And uh, I started reading, uh, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, however you see it, uh, Noam Chomsky at that time. I was recommended On Anarchism by Noam Chomsky. And uh, basically from there, I learned the language that would kind of influence the rest of my thought. Uh, I would learn what capitalism was. I would learn what the state was. I would learn what, you know, uh, Marxism was and what, you know, all of these different theories were. And just talking to other people about them was really what brought them into my mind. You know, I can relate to you a lot because even from a very early age, I, I can remember having compassion for others. And I remember the kids that didn't have compassion for others. And that really continued on through my life. Uh, when I went to college, there was a group that would go into the city um, I, I went to college outside of Pittsburgh and they would go into Pittsburgh and, and feed the homeless. And it was really, uh, it was really influential for me as well, because I would meet these people. I would talk to these people. And, you know, when you're just living your life and, and you you walk past these people in the street and first of all, the majority of homeless do not live on the street. Um, but I would talk to these people and many of them, uh, you know, a lot of them suffered from substance abuse, mental illness, which is demonized. Um, but a lot of them had circumstances in their life happen that were outside of their control that brought them to, to the situation that they were in. I would, I would talk to them. And my compassion uh, really grew a lot out of that. So I, I can relate a lot to that being kind of a turning point for you. Um, I think that that's really... I mean, one of the biggest like ideas that is circulating right now, especially online, is the idea of alienation. Uh, yeah, this and is I alienation. Think, yeah, I mean, we've been alienated by the by the capitalist system, by the state, purposefully, because if we're not talking to one another, we can't empathize and and sympathize and create solidarity with one another, and so it. It, you know, it is revolutionary to talk to your neighbors is really, I mean, it's that simple. Yeah. You know, what, what makes me think about alienation is that Trump supporters are very alienated, um, but they don't realize it. They take that alienation and they, they turn it into a reactionary force, you know, um, us, we want to move forward, but they, they, they have this stereotypical, uh, fascist tendency to say we feel alienated from the means of production. We feel alienated from each other, especially in the day and age of COVID, where we are even more physically separated from each other. 
but they want to go back, which is one of the <laughs> hallmarks of fascism. One of the biggest things is that, and this is, I think, not my opinion. I probably heard it somewhere. But one of the biggest reasons that we're all constantly online at this point is because we've spent so long be uh, having our communities being crushed, our in-real-life communities being decimated by systems of oppression, that now the only type of community that we've had and, and can be you know, formed at this point is online, is through, you know, discord and stuff like that. So now all of these kids who don't know what community feels like only find it online. Yeah. And it's a, it's a good thing and a bad thing because I think I've heard you say it and I've heard other people say it and I've said it is that it's a good thing, but I think it also prevents some of us from getting involved in real life activism and organizing in our community because we feel like we're doing something. I'm making TikToks. I'm doing posts on social media. I'm doing lives and debating conservatives. Um, I'm debating people and I'm, I'm getting thousands of people watching me debate, but it, it doesn't replace the real world organizing. Now, a question I want to ask you also is, do you think compassion can be taught? I think that, I think that the opposite of compassion is taught. I don't, what word would that be? You know, uh, contempt is taught. I mean, you you read all these books. The one of the biggest is uh, Kropotkin's Mutual Aid: A Factor of Evolution. Terrible book to read. It's super boring. Yeah, I've thought about it, but then I'm like, eh, I push it back. Yeah, I've read, heard it's read not the an easy read, and and okay. you'll be fine. Okay. Um, but basically. When we look through history, when we look through the anthropological record, we find all of this evidence that human beings only survived because they worked together. You know, it's in our it's in our blood and it's in our interest to work together in solidarity. And so I think contempt and, and bigotry and hatred is rather what has to be enforced into people. So I, I don't think that compassion needs to be taught. I think we just need to stop teaching everything else. And then it can it can come out of us naturally. Mm -hmm. We can all we we all have it. It's just I guess pushed. It's suppressed. Yeah, ab absolutely. All right, so let's get into this. First of all, for anyone that doesn't understand these leftist terms, if anyone's coming to the left, I want us to define mutual aid. I I always hate this question because there's a there's a correct way of saying it that absolutely sounds awful. Okay. And it's I, I have it written down because I hate saying it. It's the non-hierarchical distribution of resources by a given community based on need. I don't even know what that means at that point. Um, but basically what mutual aid is, is a process of building participatory economies of, of giving, uh, which is like building than things that are allowing yourself to give the needs of your community non-hierarchically. I'm describing this poorly. I'm sorry, but... No, I don't think um, so. You're doing just fine. Uh, but basically, 
there are when we think about things like our our needs like food there are two systems that we can go to to get it at this point number 1 is the market we can go to walmart and buy it and when we do that our money goes to helping the bourgeois oppressive you know white supremacist class that rules us in our economics and, or if you can't afford it at walmart you go to the state and you get snap benefits you get food stamps and that support helps the white supremacist uh patriarchal system of the state that also oppresses us so really the two systems that we have to get things like food water shelter are all in service of white supremacy nationalism you know uh, uh colonialism imperialism and the bourgeoisie like this owning rich people class yeah yeah and so mutual aid is the purposeful disruption of that it's building a third way in your community in a way that's not hierarchical that's anti-racist that's anti-imperialism and specifically works to get your community to participate in their own well-being rather than helping this rich capitalist, you know, often Silicon Valley mm-hmm. or the Walton family or Jeff Bezos or yeah, any of these people. People confuse mutual aid with charity. Can you please tell me the difference? Um how how long do you have because I have I, mean, I have a while. <laughs> uh like th- if I were to, I mean, there's so many differences that we could be here for two days, but there's probably like three or four that are the biggest. Number one is that whereas charity is this very hierarchical system where the the big decisions, the ideas of who gets aid, what type of aid it is, and how that aid gets distributed are made by the CEO, the the board executives, all of the people at the top, and the people carrying it out have very little say in how things go. Mutual aid is different in that the people who are doing the work, the, the participants in mutual aid, are the ones calling the shots. It's done through systems of, of democracy and consensus that basically make it so that the people at the bottom are the ones making the decisions. It's a non-hierarchical way of organizing. Um, the, the, the next one is that basically that charity is almost always done at the discretion of the state. Basically, all of these, you know, charities for medical care and, you know, homeless shelters, all of them are registered as 501c3s and as such are regulated as 501c3s. All of these different uh, food standards, all of these different housing standards uh, that are made up by the people who control the government, which are bourgeois, you know, uh, uh, rich capitalist, white supremacist people. Uh, All of these rules are made up by these people basically to try to hamper the ability for them to really, you know, be good at their job. Uh, All of these charities aren't really able to be. And mutual aid is not 
at the discretion of the state. It's basically a, an idea of we're going to do this whether you like it or not. There's a there's a really fun story of my um of my mutual aid group. We were in a public park giving out food uh, pretty early into my into my mutual aid kind of career, I guess you could call it. Um, and a cop pulls into the pulls into the parking lot and steps out. And I'm, you know, pretty non-confrontational white boy. So I am the designated uh, cop talker. Uh, so I walk up to the guy. I go, "Howdy, officer." God Howdy. bless. That's what good. can I do for you? Speaking his language. Oh yeah, you you gotta <laughs> you gotta say sir. You gotta you know stare him right in the eyes. Um, and he says, "Do y'all have a permit for this?" And I I I go, mm. "No, we're just a, a local church group trying to do what we can." Ooh, that's I'm sorry. Good. Yeah, I'm sorry if that's like if that's bad. Uh, we can try to get a permit next time. And he says, "I I can't allow you to do this." while while you don't have a permit i'm sorry and i'm like oh yeah that's fine god bless well i'll pa- i'll get us to pack up everything so we tell everyone you know everyone go walk over to the other side of the park and then come right back we pack everything into the car we drive around the corner we come back and the cops gone we set it right back up and we keep Brilliant. going yeah <laughs> we we just it's not a, it's about you know you're going to tell us what to do well no we're not going to follow yeah, your rules yeah absolutely absolutely um, charity also has big barriers of entry. Usually like in order to receive aid, you need to fill out paperwork. You need to, uh, in a lot of cases, be sober in a lot of cases, be a specific, uh, non-felon, for example, uh, all of these different, uh, different barriers of entry that, I mean, the people who are most in need in our communities are, people affected by drug abuse, people affected uh, by the criminal justice system. All of these people are, I mean, disproportionately black, disproportionately queer, uh, disproportionately trans. And so putting up those barriers stops charity from being able to serve the people who actually really need a lot of the help. Um, And mutual aid doesn't have that. We, I mean, you want to purposefully set up so that you know, you don't criminalize and, and punish felons. You don't punish, you know, people who've made mistakes. Uh, and you you allow the people who have the most uh, to have the most in need uh, to receive aid. Um, and I think probably the one last, like, big one is that uh, charity is a one-size-fits-all solution to a lot of problems. My, uh, my biggest uh, example of this is uh, homeless shelters. Homeless shelters, if you've ever talked to an unhoused person, are awful. They, they have all of these you know, regulations. Some of them require sobriety. Some of them require that you're searching for a job, which hurt black and brown people who are most affected by, by issues like that, uh, who are uh, hurt neurodivergent people, hurt ab- uh, uh, disabled people, all of these different groups that are hurt by those types of barriers. Um, so homeless shelters are kind of not a viable solution for most 
or not, maybe not most. They but, can be uh, very dangerous. Yeah. And they're, I mean, your stuff gets stolen. Mm. Uh, you know, there's a bunch of people who, uh, uh, you know, gangs are very often recruit in uh, homeless shelters because, I mean, that's one of the easiest places to find people who have basically in, in bad terms, but probably the only terms that we can use, nothing left to lose. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are really unsafe places that don't actually serve a lot of people because we're, we're building one size fits all solutions. And if people don't conform to that solution, they don't get aid. Uh, I always think of it like, uh, you know, that one baby toy with the, the circle hole and then the square hole, we're building a bunch of square holes. And if people are shaped differently, they can't get aid. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, so mutual aid is, is instead about creating solutions based on people rather than creating people based on aid. Uh, and so what we want to do, one of the, one of the biggest tools that you can use in mutual aid is the question, what do you need? What's going on? How are you doing? Ask people what they want what their solution to their problems are and you problem solve how to get them that instead of telling them what they're going to get. And if they don't want it, then they can leave. What are the three key elements to mutual aid? I would say the three key elements to mutual aid are things like, uh, are number one, meeting people's needs. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's like survival, survival, uh, for people, being able to feed them, being able to clothe them, being able to get them the things that a lot of the time they're unable to get because there's a paywall in front of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also about organizing your community, getting people to mobilize, getting a bunch of people together and saying, we are going to make sure that our community is taken care of using the supplies that we have at hand in our community and building supplies if we don't have them. Um, If I could just say, um, there is no freedom for anyone if your basic human needs are not met. mm -hmm. So last night I jumped on to a a live uh, on TikTok um, that a conservative was holding and he was just saying the usual nonsense. Um, He was actually... Uh, speaking with a sociologist before that was um, imploring him to use peer-reviewed data. He was like, you got to follow peer-reviewed data to help form your opinions. And this guy was like, that's nonsense. Mm -hmm. And so I get on with him and I, I try to start the conversation off with what is your idea of freedom? And he gives me some nationalist BS like, Oh, we're, we're free because we're Americans. Mm-hmm. And my definition of freedoms are two things. This is what I usually say. And I, I start off my, if I'm speaking with a conservative or libertarian, I always start off with this. I, I say my definition of freedom is having your basic needs met. Okay. You're not free if your basic needs aren't met. You can, you know, they say, oh, in America, you're free. You can say whatever you want. You can, you know, you can go anywhere you want if you want to speak against the government. You're not free if you are in the middle of the desert by yourself. You could say whatever you want. You could yell up into the sky, but you are not free in the middle of the desert. Mm -hmm. Um, You're going to die. Um, The other aspect of freedom that I 
that I say is that you do have the ability, like like we want and we we sort of enjoy, actually not really, but to have say in how our society is run. And in mm-hmm. the United States, we have the illusion of choice. We have the illusion of democracy, but we don't really. And we got stuck into debating the electoral college and how that really limits our democracy in the United States. And I guess he he lives in a red state and he loves the fact that his tiny little state with only a few people have a big say in how um, elections turn out. So he was a big fan of it. But I say, you know, what about conservatives in in blue states? What about the millions of people in in New York and California who know their vote doesn't go anywhere in a national election? Mm-hmm. Um, the conversation didn't really go anywhere. He kicked me off um, after about 10 minutes. His friend got on and his friend started going, North Korea, North Korea, you want to go to North Korea? And I was like, oh my God. But that's, it, I wanted to say it because there is no... St- start to having any sort of freedom if you have housing insecurity mm-hmm. if you have food insecurity if you don't have clean water you don't have clean air you don't have health care so it, it really starts with providing those basics which mutual aid does for for many people it's really the the old saying that a, a businessman and a homeless man are equally free to sleep under a bridge you know it it's this illusion of you're able to do what you want, but you're not really able to do with your what you want if at all times you have to break your back to find out where you're going to get uh, your next meal. You know, it, it's about being able to provide the ability to relax and and have uh, mental stability in the face of you know poverty. Because it, that's really hard to have when you don't know where your next meal is coming from, when you don't know if you're going to be sleeping in a park or on someone's couch, you know? And that's really what mutual aid is about, is making sure that that doesn't happen to people, that there's another way to get food, water, shelter, health care, all of these different things. What are some of the dangers or pitfalls involved with mutual aid? Um, I think, I mean, we were talking about Dean Spade's, uh, uh, mutual aid, uh, uh, he describes it probably better than anyone I've ever seen. Um, he has three basic ideas of like what the biggest pitfalls of, of mutual aid is. And it's just, the first one is deservingness hierarchies, basically Mm. this idea that certain people are deserving of having their needs met and other people are not. Usually that falls on lines of, oh, this person's a felon. He doesn't deserve to get, uh, you know, to get housing, to get food uh, help. Uh, All of these different government programs are shut down if you've committed a felony, things like that. Um, uh, Similarly, it's things like uh, if you are a drug user, you don't deserve to be helped with uh, child care. If you're if you're a drug user, then all of these things are blamed on you. It's your fault, and so your needs no longer matter to people. And while mutual aid is a lot of the time built with that in mind, a lot of the time the people who start mutual aid are, you know, very aware of that type of thing. Um, 
there is also the 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 potential chance that we could slip back into that mindset, uh, especially when it comes to uh, felonies. You know, uh, there are going to be people who have committed, you know, uh, uh, armed robbery who you are going to have to service. And they're no less deserving of food and housing and shelter than anyone else. And so that's number one. We have to remember that. Uh, The next one is saviorism. Basically, this idea that, you know, I'm going to come in and I'm going to save people uh, by, by my own initiative, by my own leadership. You know, I am going to be the one who delivers the food to the, uh, to the needy pores, you know? And what really mutual aid needs to be is not I'm giving to you, but you are telling me what you need. It is aid that is started and, and led by the people receiving that aid. The, the ultimate question of what do you need? How can we best accommodate your different material reality? How can we uh, best give you food? For example, you're going to give uh, a Jew, a Muslim, and a, a Christian different food because of the different uh, uh, religious doctrines around food. You're going to give... Uh, 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 I, I mean, one of the funny stories that I like to tell is I learned the hard way that uh, when you are serving a community that is either majority Asian or majority Black, you want to keep away from the dairy because a lot of people are lactose intolerant. And I had a bunch of people walk up and say, I, I, I can't have this or else I'm going to destroy, you know, the, the public toilets and then they're not going to let me back in. Um, and so all of these different needs you can't account for. I can't know who you are by looking at you. And so you tell me what I need to do for you rather than I tell you how I'm going to save you. Hmm. Um, and, and the third one would, uh, is co-optation. And this is the one that, uh, whenever you, please redefine that word for us. Co-optation is the stealing of the aesthetics and and the different uh you know benefits of mutual aid by people who don't have mutual aid at heart basically taking all of the benefits of mutual aid and saying look we did this uh which is one of the biggest uh pitfalls a, a lot of people will will point to um but it also Co-optation can be the the making of mutual aid as kind of a, a moot, uh, not not revolutionary idea anymore. Basically, the uh, charity by another name kind of idea, where if mutual aid is not purposefully formatted in a way that challenges the systems of domination and injustice and racism and and bigotry that we are so heavily governed by, if it's not always uh, pointing its finger 
and trying to dismantle systems of capitalism and the state, then it's basically been co-opted into this larger system of benefiting the people at the top. Um, and so mutual aid needs to always be, you know, formatted in a way that we can best accommodate things like that. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to be self-critical, which is one of the things, I mean, we know through leftist infighting, leftists are very good at being self-critical. So I have no doubt in my mind that we'll, we'll be fine on that front, at least. So um, I, uh, in previous uh, episodes of my podcast, I talked a little bit about how when I was a teenager and when I was young, I, I had a lot of problems with uh, drugs and alcohol. And it's something that is even in my personal life, coworkers and even some casual friends of mine don't know that I went through this um, in my in my youth. Um, I am totally off of drugs and alcohol now, and and have been for for several years. That's just the best thing mm. for me uh, personally. Um, and one really interesting dual power society. Um, that a lot of people don't know about, and maybe even s some people really misunderstand, is uh, the twelve-step uh, groups. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people are not very familiar with them. They might have heard of the twelve steps. Um, they might have seen, like in movies and TV shows, people sitting around in a circle talking about their drinking or whatever. But they're though that is actually a dual power society. And they have something called the 12 traditions. Um, and the 12 traditions are different from the 12 steps. The 12 steps are really for the alcoholic or addict. And mm. they work the 12 steps with um, something called a sponsor. And there's, there's writing and there's lists and there's all sorts of things that they do. But the traditions are meant for the groups and for the 12 step um uh, the 12 step community as a whole, whether it's AA or NA or any other 12 step group. And I know other leftists that are in and have been in 12 step groups. And um, there's so, it, it's such a powerful example of a, uh, of a dual power society. And for me, it's really proof that all these principles that we are advocating for and we live by work. Um, I will tell you right now, tradition two of the 12 traditions, and it goes like this. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Group decisions are just that, group decisions. After a discussion of all aspects of a given situation, including the minority opinion, the group votes on the issue and an agreement is reached with the majority vote. This is called a group conscience. Now understand this, and I know I'm going on a little bit of a tangent right now, but AA, the original 12-step group, was founded by a man named Bill Wilson. He was literally a capitalist. Uh, he was a stock trader. He lost a lot of money in the, uh, the, in the, the Great Depression, the Wall Street crash, and somehow he founded this thing, AA, which completely went against his principles. Mm -hmm. um, he was a money-hungry, uh, uh, power-hungry guy. People that knew him you know, actually said he wasn't a very nice guy. Um, but one thing he established in the founding 
of Alcoholics Anonymous was that even though he was the founder of it, he was not going to have any more vote in how it ran and how it was created than anyone else. And at one point, he wanted to create a for-profit uh, community of AA. He wanted this. He wanted to make money. He wanted shareholders. He wanted to have AA centers, and he wanted to get paid. Mm-hmm. And he left this up to a group group conscience. And they said, absolutely not. This is going to be 100% nonprofit. And on top of that, our leadership is not really going to be the typical leadership. Our leaders are actually going to be servants of the people that are just coming in, of the newcomers. So if you have a year of sobriety or off of drugs or two years, you need to think of yourself in a way that you are beneath this person just coming in with one day mm-hmm. because you are to be of service to that person in any way possible. And all the decisions that we make within this community is, is to be of service to the, the newcomers. So it's just an amazing thing. Uh, it's just proof that it works. Mm-hmm. And I really just wanted to bring that up because a lot of us on the left um, have not really um, are not really aware of this. Uh, a lot of people are aware of some misconceptions about uh, 12-step communities. Um, maybe uh, they think it's some type of religious group or a cult or anything like that. There is a religious, not religious, there is a spiritual aspect of it. Um, I'm not really going to get into it as uh, any more than that, but I think it's really interesting to just reflect on that. Now, another thing that I want to bring up to you um, in the leftist infighting that you talked about between some people that think mutual aid is important, some people that think it's anarchist bullshit, like what I brought up in the beginning, Yeah, was that, you know, uh, I'm a member of a leftist organization. I'm not, I might've mentioned it in an earlier episode of the podcast, but I'm not going to mention the group now, but they sell papers. They sell a lot of papers mm-hmm. <laughs> and selling papers is fine. Um, and the poly ed is great. I, I really do agree with the perspective of this organization. Um, but being of service and, and what they believe as being political education as the primary goal of the organization, I think is important because we we have to have a program to lead the community, to lead society. If we don't, Mm -hmm. if we don't truly understand the history, the material conditions and the philosophy of our movement, we're, we're not going to properly lead. There have been so many movements and revolutions that have failed because we didn't have a solid found philosophical and economic foundation. But if you want to talk about leadership, mutual aid builds those leadership qualities. When you are Mm. in the community and you are out there being of service, that is building, that is building true leadership. It's, it's really about recognizing what a leader is in the context of leftism. A lot of people on the left think that they'll be the one, you know, uh, they'll be the, uh, you know, supreme guy governing everyone else. And their, their opinion is law. They're going to be the Lenin or something like that, right? Yeah. Um, 
but the the idea of leadership really should be focused on on as you say with the with the 12 step programs you are beneath the people you are only there to service other people's needs and if you aren't doing that you should be removed mm-hmm. and so one of the biggest things that that i learned from all of these different uh backgrounds and and coming from a more kind of anarchisty type of of organization um was that power should always be self-critical and we should always be purposefully critical of any power that we have um kind of the idea of if a person is in charge you should always be skeptical of why are they in charge do they need to be in charge are they doing their job and if the answer to any of those is they're not doing their job. They shouldn't be in charge. They are removed immediately like that. Um, so really we've lost this idea of leadership. Uh, and, and it's a type of leadership that I don't even think Lenin believed in. I don't think that Lenin was this guy who was out for my opinion will be law, but rather I will serve the people around me. Uh, And so it's kind of, we should refocus around uh, things that build the type of leadership that we need. And that thing, funnily enough, is mutual aid, in my opinion. Mutual aid necessitates that you listen to people, that you listen to how they need, uh, how they think they can be helped. And instead of you telling them, I know what's best, they tell you, and it's your job to facilitate them. You are the grease in the works rather than the the person turning the handle. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's that's really great. Um, they they just as as long as I've been what I call a socialist or a communist or a leftist, I've always believed so strongly in service. And, you know, I think of um, like a Che Guevara quote that in the heart of every revolutionary needs to be a deep sense of love. Mm. And it's hard out here. You know, it's hard in, in a capitalist society. It's hard in the U.S. to bring love, to embrace everything you do with love and service because it's, it's, it's hard out here. It's getting worse, I feel. And there's a lot of anger. And like how we, we said earlier, there's a lot of alienation. And people are frustrated. They feel hopeless. So when we come with some hope and, and you know, something that I've always said is that what should come along with mutual aid is some sort of um, inv- invitation into your movement. I know that that's part of what the Black Panthers did. And when you wanted to, you know, find me a, find me a communist or, or a, a Leninist that wants to criticize the Black Panthers, you know, yeah. Black Panthers were all about mutual aid and, you know, the breakfast programs and the, the healthcare programs, but they also use that in, in a way to welcome people into the movement. Mm. Um, so it's one of the biggest things that we've forgotten is that, yes, reading theory is so important. 
And understanding the philosophical ideas is what makes or breaks revolutions. But at the end of the day, you can't read yourself into socialism. You have to build socialism. And that's what the Black Panthers did so well. And why the state found them so threatening is because they knew we have to have a good theoretical foundation, but theory is only as useful as it gets you outside. Mm -hmm. And not everyone is going to read theory. Not everyone has the time. And not everyone is going to sit and read some of these books that are pretty dense. I mean, some of them for me, I'm like, oh my God, what, what did he just say? I'll give you an example. Um, my wife's uncle was the security. So my wife is from the Dominican Republic. And um, Dominican Republic is one of these countries that during the Cold War, they elected a leftist president. Mm -hmm. uh, his name was Juan Bush. And he was, he actually had met Che Guevara in Guatemala uh, around the time all these leftists were exiled in Guatemala. Uh, and uh, the president of Guatemala, his name was Jacobo Arbenz, he was overthrown uh, by the, the CIA. And then all of these leftist exiles had to, had to leave and had to move. But anyway. The Dominican Republic had a fascist dictator. When he was assassinated, they held their very first elections. The man elected was Juan Bush. Juan Bush was elected into power and after six months was uh, overthrown by an invasion by the Marines. Mm -hmm. The Marines invaded the Dominican Republic and sent him out and then installed another fascist dictator. So I didn't know this. My wife's uncle lives with us right now. He's an amazing guy. And, and he's always been like very leftist, progressive. Um, but I didn't know, but he was a security guard for Juan Bush. Mm -hmm. And I only found this out like this summer. And he's like, yeah, he, he heard me speaking of like dialectical materialism, one of these terms. He's like, yeah, I know about that. I was like, how do you know? about dialectical materialism. He's like, well, Juan Bosch would like gather all his security guards and all his other workers. And he would basically teach us these principles. Mm -hmm. We would sit around and, and he would teach us. And I learned so much just sitting there listening about these ideas. And, and what it showed me is that not everyone is going to learn these ideas. Like this is the value of right now doing this on the internet or going into the community. And when we're handing out food or giving out clothes or, or, or whatever, also give these people an invitation to join us and mm -hmm. to learn more. One of the biggest things that has informed the way that I, I do my uh, socialist organizing is the high school that I graduated from, uh, there was a, a report that came out and about an eighth of the people who graduated each year graduated um, were unable to read past a fourth grade level. Whoa. Um, and a, about half of those were unable to read at all. And those are the ones that graduated, not the ones that dropped out. And I mean, thinking about it systemically, I, I mean, we can guess what race those people were. We can guess, uh, you know, uh, 
whether they were disproportionately disabled or not and disproportionately neurodivergent or not, because the, I mean, all of these things feed into one another, but I was lucky enough to, I mean, I've always been kind of a, a reading type of person. I like books because um, I'm a nerd, but uh, I'm reading all of these books and really I don't expect that to be what inspires socialism. Because if I can't walk up to a person, I, I mean, I've known all of these people, friends from my classes who can't read past a fourth grade level. And if I can't talk to them about these ideas, then we have no chance of getting anyone to pay attention to us. So leftism, yes, we should be reading constantly, but we should only be reading insofar that we can talk to one another, insofar that we can have conversations with one another about what do you think this means? Here, I'm going to explain this to you. You explain something to me. And talking to one another is one of the biggest things that mutual aid creates. Uh, being able to be in a mutual aid collective uh, and, and be exposed to different people every day and say, how are you doing? Want to talk about, you know, the means of production, you know, uh, of course, not that uh, unnatural, but we need to be able to talk to one another. And that's why when you look at all of these revolutions that, the, uh, that have succeeded, they've not been built on books. They've been built on conversations, on discussions, on activism, on the boots on the ground. Not to say that reading books is bad, but that books only serve as a medium to start conversations. Hmm. I love that. Now to switch gears a little bit, you are an artist, you are a musician, your, um, your name on uh, TikTok is really interesting. Mm -hmm. Ben Shapiro, the musical. Um, tell me a little bit about that, your, your name, what, what that's about. Are you making a musical? Mm -hmm. and, and tell me a little bit about your whole, um, your uh, being a musician. And I, I really don't know much about this, mm -hmm. so I'm really interested in hearing about it. I'm a uh, I'm a composer by uh, by trade, really. I I've um, I'm in college currently for musical composition as well as uh, other things. But um, being an artist is about to me expressing more than just my feelings. It's about expressing my life, and my life is working class. My life is. Uh, mutual aid and direct action. And it is also a, a reaction to conservatism. Um, and so I am writing Ben Shapiro, the musical, uh, wow. this, this uh, full length uh, musical around, based around uh, Ben Shapiro. Um, and it's, it's basically my way of, of satirizing this conservative reactionary uh, mindset that has plagued america since 2014 since gamergate um really i mean it's always been there but it has never been mainstreamed until then or never been mainstreamed for white society until then i should say um and so really what it's about is taking ben shapiro at his word creating a world in which ben shapiro is correct 
And the only way that we could do that is to have a world where people are literally singing and dancing. Uh, you know, he, he his worldview is so divorced from reality that you have to have no reality at all in order for his opinions to be correct. And that's really what the piece satirizes. Wow. <laughs> that sounds incredible. Um, I'm really excited to, uh, to hear about that. how many songs like have you have you made now for for this musical and mm -hmm. what kind of other characters um, are going to be involved in it it's a is there, uh, is there a charlie kirk there is, is not unfortunately is there a candace owens uh there is mentioned to candace owens but there's oh. not i tried to center it only around ben shapiro kind of to divorce him from everyone else uh i wanted him to be cut off from the kind of far right pipeline that he serves to take him as like a case study rather than uh, a link in a chain. Um, and so uh, while there's reference to all these people like Charlie Kirk and Candace Owens, um, it mostly centers around him. And uh, as for the progress of that musical, I had to take a break for a while to write a different musical because uh, I was getting paid for that one. And of course, money has to come first when you uh, are a poor college student. But um, now I'm getting back to it. I'm, a, I'm on uh, number 13 of 17. So it is nearly done. Uh, and from there, I hope to, you know, spread it around, get people to do it if they can. Cool. That's really cool. Well, I, I, I'd like to end it right there because um, that was just really fun and, and, and interesting to hear the other aspect of your life, which is art and music and mm -hmm. fun, but also involved in what we do and, and making the world a better place. And I can't wait to see Ben Shapiro, the musical. Um, Ethan Whitman, can you just tell me where we could find you um, online on social media? You can find me. I think the only one that I have currently is TikTok. You'll be able to find me there uh, at Ben Shapiro, the musical. Uh, awesome. Like and subscribe if you must. Great. No, definitely like and subscribe. I mean, he's worth getting TikTok just for him because he does uh, lives where he interacts with people, answers questions, a lot of trolls, but a lot of people, you know, also just engaging and having uh, great conversations and his TikToks are, they're like series. He does a lot of series. Like this is the mutual aid 101 series, part one, part two. And I really enjoy that. Um, there, you're one of the few people that I will sit, I'll watch that whole one minute or even some of them are longer now, three minute TikToks where uh, they're fantastic. Thank you. So Ethan, thank you so much. That was great. And I will see you again. Thank you for having me.